Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Rosemary Cipriano. The Little Mermaid had an excellent rack, and (laughs) Prince Eric loved her. That and more. But before that, it is January, uh, the year 2020. It's a year that shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted that by now we'd be teleporting and living on Mars. A lot of those predictions are wrong because the truth is we usually get the future a little bit wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right. And that's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more per year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. So, if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. Better to get life insurance right. Also, there are so many amazing workshops coming up through the Story Studio, our sister business. Uh, If you live in Los Angeles, David Crabb has one coming up on February 8th and 9th. In Minneapolis, Amy Salloway is teaching one on January 25th and January 26th. In New York, Gigi Lee is teaching one on January 25th and January 26th. And check out these exciting new opportunities we're making for online in-person workshops. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Nothing really compares to standing in front of a group of people, even if you're online with them, and sharing a story. And that group of people just happens to be super focused on learning and exploring about the dynamics of storytelling so they can give you all of this remarkable insight and great feedback along the way. So again, that is all at thestorystudio.org. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is A.C. Newman behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Substitutes. These are three stories from very different shows. Some are from a while back. One from New York, one from L.A., one from Indianapolis. That one, we're going to hear in a little bit, is told by Mickle White Esposito. But before that, we're going to hear one that was recorded here in New York City. It's a story by Rosemary Cipriano, who you can find at rosemarycipriano.com. Here she is now with a story we call My Fake Boobs and Me. happening live. All right. Hi. (laughs) I'm a chatty person. I'm a Gemini. I have something to say. Thank you. I have something to say about every little thing, every conversation, every story. I have something to contribute to it. But I was at a complete loss for words as to how to talk about my boobs until pretty recently. So I was born without my left pec, so my left breast just never grew. She stayed a quiet, barely there A cup, while my right one flourished into a gravity-defying D cup. It's called Pollen Syndrome. Uh, it's this really rare syndrome where you're born without one of your pectoris majors. Uh, there's very little research on it. There's really not that much out there on it. All you know is that you're just born with it. Maybe it's not Maybelline. <laughs> and aside from the cosmetic stuff on it, um, it's Carrying groceries is really difficult, and doing push-ups and pull-ups and any pec machines at the gym, I can't do. A lot of other people who have this, they also have a lot of other uh, side effects. Like, some people have, like, a webbed hand or webbed fingers on the side of the pectoris that they're missing. So I kind of was lucky that I was just missing that full muscle and nothing else. It didn't really affect me that much as a kid. I didn't really notice it that much until I got a little bit older and started going into locker rooms and seeing girls in bathing suits and noticing their cleavage and that I didn't have any and they did. And I became mildly obsessed with staring at girls' tits. Um, Just wishing I had cleavage too and wondering what that would look like on me. No one knew that the loud bitch in the back of the classroom with the unibrow and the softball jersey, the the one that was the class clown, the jokester, no one knew that she was hiding behind all of these jokes, that she had to stuff a prosthetic breast into a bra she got from a doctor every day and couldn't tell anybody about it, how to keep it a complete secret for so long, not tell a soul and not wear low-cut shirts for fear that people would see. Um, Yeah, that's a prescription prosthetic and a prescription bra. You can't find that at Kohl's. So the prosthetic breast was like, it became another like limb for me. It um, looked like a fake boob. It was like my color nude. It was like beigey and I had a fake nipple. No idea why. (laughs) No purpose for that. And it was like slinky and plasticky and it would stick to my chest in the summer when I got sweaty. The chafing was real. Uh, So gross. Um, It would bounce if you threw it. Yes, I've thrown it. I had a friend who liked to play hot potato with it. Uh, And I remember the doctor came out with all of these specific bras for it. So what made it different from a normal bra was that there was like a little slit in it where you could put the prosthetic in, and it was kind of like a bralette. They're very comfortable, aside from the fact that you're wearing a prosthetic. And uh, they tried to make them look like pretty and uh, make you like feel like a woman. And here's these lacy, flowery bras. Um, And my favorite was this white bra that had lace all over and had lace over the cleavage, so I didn't have to worry about that. And 
What was awesome about it was that it looked like a shirt, like a lace shirt that you put underneath like a tank top. And this was the early 2000s and people loved that shit. So I got compliments on it all the time. Where did you get that, Coles? <laughs> but things started to change once I got my, uh, my first crush in fifth grade. His name was John, he was a bad boy. His parents were divorced. <laughs> Um, I thought I could change him, and it wouldn't be the first time that I would think that about a man. <laughs> but he started dating this girl who was like the certifiable popular pretty girl. She uh, wore head-to-toe baby fat and puma sneakers, and she wore, she rocked the shit out of these white camisole tops with the bras built in. You know what I'm talking about. She rocked the shit out of those. And I remember looking at her and looking at her boobs and looking at her cleavage and thinking, in fifth grade, shit, I'm going to need a boob job because no guy's going to want to date me when I get my bras from doctors. And I didn't really understand what a boob job was at that point in time. I was still too young. I kind of just thought they put the prosthetic in my chest. And um, there was a while when I was younger where I was like, well, God made me this way, so I'm not gonna change it. But as uh, my right breast grew and as I got more crushes, I realized I don't have to sit here and take this. I can <laughs> do something about it. And the sexual part was kind of a mystery to me too at that point. I didn't understand like what the point of boobs were. I just knew that I needed to have them even because that's all I knew my entire life. From the moment I was born, my doctor handed my mom a business card of the plastic surgeon who would reconstruct my boobs one day. They knew that early. And I had never known another life other than one day I'm gonna get a boob job and one day they'll be even, uh, but right now they're not. And the Little Mermaid had an excellent rack and <laughs> Prince Eric loved her. And it, it just made me realize like I need that too. I want that too. I want to be even. I wanna wear a shell bikini and <laughs> You know, Ariel gave up her voice for the chance to walk on land. I gave up my left tit for what exactly? Uh, people make deals with the devil and the Babadook and they get something in return. Me, I got the experience. Uh, this was an unpaid internship. <laughs> but one day I did learn how it folds into sex. And um, that's when I really, really, felt like I needed that boob job. And I watched this, I realized that, you know what, I'm just not gonna have sex until after I have all this breast reconstruction, then I'll have sex. But then I saw a movie once where a girl was wearing a t-shirt while she was having sex the whole time. And I was like, oh my God, I just need to find a guy that's into that, that will, <laughs> would never wanna see my boobs and everything will be fine. Obviously that's not what happened. <laughs> Um, my first sexual experience was while wearing a prosthetic. Um, it was with uh, my first partner um, ever when I was in high school. And he knew my situation, he understood it, but I don't know if he really did because he was a teenage boy with a girlfriend that looked like she had big boobs. So I don't think he really cared all that much. And he always, you know, like teenage boys do, like they want to see your tits. And um, said, no, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet. And one day, it was just this beautiful summer day on Long Island, and I just decided that now was the time. I'm gonna take off my shirt and I'm gonna show him what I look like. And um, I had prepared for it. I, was, I thought about the sexiest bra I had as a 15-year-old, which was a pink leopard print bra from Victoria's Secret. <laughs> and I stuffed my prosthetic in there and tried to maneuver in a way that it wasn't that noticeable. And I thought, okay, I'll take off my tank top, I'll put my hair in front of my left breast, and then just like show him the right one. <laughs> my right side is better. <laughs> and he won't even notice, it'll be fine. And so we were enduring one of our many makeout sessions, leaving to absolutely nothing, and oh, the good old days. <laughs> and I 
was so nervous. I was shaking and my stomach was just tumbling over itself. And it was just the most perfect day. My dad was mowing the lawn and I, I smelled like salt from the beach still. And my hair was like the, the cute beachy waves, like not that greasy. And I was young and felt alive. And I was like, I, I need to do this. I have to do this. I can't be afraid forever. And so I took off my tank top and did exactly what I had been rehearsing in my head. Take off tank top, put hair in front of left breast, put the right one out. (laughs) And I did that. And then he moved my hair out of the way. And I watched him look at my breasts and look at the prosthetic peeping out. And he looked up to me and he said, you're beautiful. And I wish I could live in that moment forever. It was, I felt normal for the first time. I felt like there wasn't something wrong with me, but it didn't last forever because the jealousy sweeped in. And what if he sees another girl with just as big of tits as I do and decides to go with her? Uh, He could have someone normal, but he's staying with me, but I don't know how long he's gonna stay with me. I could hear those words a thousand times over and I would never believe it. I felt like a circus performer. Every time I looked in the mirror, I just I I looked like there was something wrong with me. I couldn't look at myself. I was the girl with severely uneven boobs. And even at one point, my doctor was like, just try to do some arm exercises. Maybe there is some muscle left there that you can build up a little bit. And I would, I would try so hard, but nothing ever happened because there was nothing ever there and nothing would ever be there. Uh, And I found solace in the day that I had my final breast surgery. I don't think anyone has walked into a hospital so damn happy in their lives. I practically skipped into the OR. I told every nurse that would come my way the whole situation. I told them the whole story. I have Poland syndrome and I've been living with a prosthetic, but now I won't have to anymore after this final surgery. I cannot wait to never wear a bra again. I will just be braless forever. And I remember I I woke up and I felt like there was a jellyfish on my face. I have asthma, so they put all these tubes and things in me. And I started ripping it apart. And uh, a nurse came over and, you know, brought me back to reality, my new reality. And I remember the smell of iodine and sweat. And my surgeon runs over too, and he sees I'm awake. And I looked at him as if he was God, and I said, do I have boobs now? And he opened up the surgical bra and I looked down and I saw that I had two boobs and they were there and they were even and they were perfect. They may have been a little bloody and they may have been a little bruised at the moment. They may have been scarred, but they were my boobs and I loved them so much. And the road to recovery would be so difficult, but It was all worth it to look in the mirror and not want to look away and to be proud of what I saw. Now, I want to tell everybody in the world that I have fake boobs. (laughs) I tell everybody, anyone that crosses my path, every guy I've ever slept with knows, even if it was a one-night stand, they know. (laughs) They are lucky to have been with a girl who has fake boobs and has a perfect rack. You're lucky. so set in myself and so set in my personality and that my boobs fill out all of my bras and my body feels amazing and I finally felt like this part of me that was missing it was filled literally and I felt like the woman I always wanted to be and I could go forth and be that woman and nothing was stopping me and I will tell everybody that I have fake tits and my dad used to tell me when I was little um, (laughs) he used to say uh, he used to tell me to close my mouth when I played softball because my teeth were expensive well (laughs) my tits were expensive so I will have them out on display whenever possible and if there's anybody out there who doesn't know this story please have them come my way because I'd love to tell them the story of the girl with incredibly even boobs. Thank you guys so much.
like boobs a lot. Yes, I like boobs a lot. Boobs a lot, boobs a lot. You gotta like boobs a lot. Really like boobs a lot. You gotta like boobs a lot. Boobs a lot, boobs a lot. You gotta like boobs a lot. Down in the locker room, just the big boys. Beating down the locker room with all that noise. Sing it, do you like boobs a lot? You gotta like boobs a lot. Boobs a lot, boobs a lot. You gotta like boobs a lot. Many years ago, I'm in my 20s. I'm at graduate school, at college, and it's a summer. Sun is shining outside. Birds are singing outside. But I am holed up in my room with the most crippling depression you could ever imagine. I am totally fucked up. Okay? Now, the overall reason for this depression is um, basically I've always had some long-term clinical depression. But I was a really good actor. I could fool other people, and more importantly, I could fool myself. So I put on a happy face, and that was an integral part of my personality. But a shelf life on that type of coping, that doesn't last long. The bottom dropped out, I'm in a hell of a state. So I decide, all right, I'm going to literally fly somewhere away far. I'm going to fly away far. I'm going to just clear the shit out of my head. I'm taking a vacation. So I fly to San Francisco, always wanted to visit. I get there, I hunker down in a cheap hostel, and I start moving about, checking out the surroundings. So, a couple days after I get there, I'm walking around somewhere near Fisherman's Wharf. And as I said, it's the summer, sun is shining, a lot of tourists around, lively atmosphere. And I, for some reason, become drawn into this, the shop front that's to my left. And I just decide, well, what's going on in here? And I, I go through, I walk past the showcase, and I turn a corner, and there's these two girls there. And they light up as soon as they see me, and they say, oh, you decided to come. <laughs> and I didn't know for the invitation. I say, well, yeah, of course I decided to come. <laughs> and they say, we're having a party. You should come on in. So they lead me into some rooms in the back, and it's a pretty plush uh, situation. Tall ceilings, wonderful draperies, music tinkling in the background, great food. And about uh, 40 or 50 people in attendance, and everyone is super duper friendly. So I'm hobnobbing, rubbing shoulders, having a good time. And then it's time for the keynote speaker of this event. And she turns out to be a woman of German origin who championed a form of psychotherapy uh -huh, that combined traditional psychoanalysis with, with yoga and bodywork, and this is right up my alley, man. So I'm sitting there listening to her talk about her case histories, and she's saying, a talk therapy can only do so much. It, it, it works, but it can only do so much. Trauma is held in the body. Trauma is held in the body. You have to work the body to rid the body, to rid the self of trauma. And I am just going, glory, hallelujah. This is why I have been drawn here. I'm saved, okay? So I decide right then and there, I'm going to start working with this therapist. After she gets done with the talk, I go and I chat with her. I get her card. So then we adjourn to an adjacent room where they're showing a film a documentary about the organization that was hosting this event, about what they did. And so I'm looking at the images on the film. I'm, I'm still relaxed, having a good time, man. And I'm seeing uh, on the screen, they've got pictures of people um, digging wells in third world countries, how doing housing, beating the oxen, you know, really cool stuff. And then at the end of the film, the voiceover goes, and all this has been made possible by the benevolence of our founder, the Pastor Smith. Now, I know these people. I have heard of these people, the Smithies. They're a cult. My blood turns to cottage cheese, man. I have read. These people have, they presented themselves as the second coming of Jesus Christ. No less, okay? And they seduced a lot of uh, teenagers away from their families, uh, brainwashed them, created a lot of social turmoil. And I'm sitting here going, what the fuck, man? This is 
what, what's one eye is on the people and the other eye is on the back of my head just trying to find an exit and I just do the octopus, you know, just, hi, yeah, nice, nice to meet you. Good, good to meet you. Yes, okay, right. And I get the fuck out of there, man. <laughs> so I merge onto the sidewalk, sun is shining again, people outside and I'm going, wow, I just had a brush with the Smithies. I don't believe this shit. This is going to be a great story to tell, man. So... In the next few days, I do some sightseeing. I go, I visit uh, Golden Gate Park and, uh, and Mirror Woods. I go to Baker Beach and I go to Berkeley because this is where my therapist lives. Now, she was not a member of the Smithies, okay? She was an independent therapist that the Smithies had. They, they liked the work she did and so they invited her to the convocation. So this made me feel safe. And plus, I, 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 I need help. So... I go to Berkeley, I go to the house, I knock on her door, hi, how you doing? Doing all right, come, come. So we go, we walk through the house, we go into the backyard where she's got like a a shed-sized structure that serves as her office. So we go in there and we go to it. And I really go to it because, listen, I have never done anything like this before. I am from a, a culture and a background that you don't, you don't go to therapy, man. You don't, you don't do counseling. You man up and you stuff that shit down, all right? So I'm breaking ground here, man. And I'm sitting with her and she's asking me all the right questions. She's saying, what do you think is causing you this depression? And I say, well, I, I, I think a part of it is because of my relationship with my mother. And she goes, oh, well, can you describe that relationship? And I go, well, there was a lot of manipulation and judgment involved. And she goes, well, tell me, what, what, what happened? Could you think of anything to tell me? And I go, yeah, I remember when I was like six or seven years old, I, uh, I broke a glass or something like that by accident. And the next thing I know, I'm getting punched and kicked and I'm thrown out onto the porch in front. And, and the front door is locked and I'm out there by myself and it's pitch black. And I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> And I'm just bawling my ass off. Shit like that, okay? So we go deep. We talk, we talk about my masturbatory history, okay? How old were you when you first masturbated? Well, I was 14. Well, what do, you, what do you think of it? And I already brought it up. You know, she goes, why did you bring it up? And I go, well, you know, I was, I was raised Catholic. Uh, I would masturbate and, and there's a lot of guilt. And since I did it a lot, there's even more guilt. And it was just, so we, we're going deep. We're doing it, Okay. And it's working, man. You know it's working because this it's, it's stuff is coming up. And now in real time now in the shed, I'm, I'm, I'm crying now. And, I'm, and she's bringing cushions for me to hit. And she's going, get it out of your body. Get it out of your body. And I'm beating the cushions and I'm bawling and carrying on. And it's a big fucking production. And she's, she's, she's doing it. She's doing it right. She's empathic. She's compassionate. And she's holding space for this. And I can feel... The tension in my chest, just going, ah, just releasing. Shit's working. I'm starting to feel good. I'm like, this is awesome. So around the fourth or fifth time, I go into the shed in the back there, and she says, have you been uh, back to visit the, the Pastor Smith's group since, since we started? And I say, no. Why? And she says, well, look, I know that they have a bad rap of being a cult, okay? But I have to express my truth and tell you that I think it's just fair. It's just, you know, it's just, just prejudice against uh, spirituality. And, and I really think that they have a really sound, uh, emotional environment that could do you good. Look at the, the state you're in. This would really help you. I think you, it would do you good to check them out. Now, this woman is the person that I have been the most open and vulnerable with in my entire life. So why would I hold anything back but the truth? So I say, well, I hear what you're saying, but my truth is that they're a fucking cult. They're fucking crazy. Okay? I think they're fucking crazy. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I look at her and I smile. And what happened next? What happened next is she pointed a finger at me and she said, you're stupid. You're a fool. You're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything, and on and on, and she just fucking attacked. And I'm sitting there with my ass just rooted to the chair, my eyes just wide like saucers, and I'm like, what, what's going on? What, what's going on? Did, what, did I do something wrong? What's going on? She's digging up stuff 
deep personal stuff that I shared with her for healing. And she's throwing it back at me. Oh, you think compulsive masturbation is going to help you? That's not going to help you. You think that's going to work? What are, you, what are you doing all that nasty stuff for? And she is insulting and undermining vigorously, man, with, with, with teeth. So this went on for, I don't know how long, man. Um, my mind is so fucked right now, I can't track time. It could have been 10 minutes, could have been 25 minutes. I'm just sitting there, just numb, shattered. She gets done, and that's the session for the day. That was what we did for the day. That was it. I get up, and I just numbly just stagger out of her office. I can't tell up from down, right from left. I make my way to the train station. I can't tell you what I walked by on the way to that train station. I sit on the train. I'm just dimly aware of like the lights going by on the windows on the train. And there's just this pitch black void that's just like gathering around me. I go straight past my regular stop. I go to Baker Beach. That was the end of the line. Baker Beach is wonderful, man. Beautiful. Sandy beaches. Ocean on the horizon, mountains in the background, iconic postcard view of Golden Gate Bridge, and some wonderful, wonderful, majestic cliffs. So I stagger to the top of one of those cliffs, and I stand on the edge. I'm looking down, and I'm watching the waves just roll into the rocks at the bottom, like about 80 feet below. And I'm literally just praying for the strength to jump. I am praying. I am literally praying. Please give me the strength to launch my fucking self into oblivion. And I can feel despair and hopelessness. Just like a palpable thing, man. I can feel it on my skin just raining down on me. And there's tears just gushing. And I'm just, I want to die. I want to fucking die. This went on for maybe about an hour or so until I gathered enough of my shit together to back away from the edge, made my way back to my hostel, and I just lay, I remember that night well, I just lay on the bed just looking up at the ceiling from like, I don't know, 5 p.m. till midnight or whatever, just, just staring at the ceiling, just absolutely, just chaotic, just absolutely chaotic inside here. So... Three days later, I go back for my next scheduled appointment. Because I'm in fucking crazy town now, man. I am just, I am just blitzed. I am gone. I'm sitting there in the shed, just sweating like a pig. My heart just fluttering like, like, like a bird in my chest. And I'm going, well, what's going to happen? Is she, is she going to like me? What's, what's going to... And I'm just waiting. And she comes in the door. And she opens her mouth to speak. And she's nice. Oh, she's so nice. She goes, how are you doing? How are you going today? How are you feeling your body? How do you feel in your body? What's going on in your... What's going on up here? How do you feel the work that we've been doing on on as though nothing happened as though nothing happened and I am just I am just relief just bathing in relief oh god so we go and we have another session as though nothing happened now the reason I went back was because of a little something called transference okay dictionary definition transference noun the inappropriate repetition in the present of a relationship that was missing but vital in the past. Because what had happened, see, is, is, first of all, she lied. She was a smithy, died in the world. And number two, my enthusiasm for healing led me to just run headlong into the next level brainwashing technique as employed by the smithies. You see, this woman was the first person to give me compassion for things that I was killing, things I did, things that I thought, things that I was slaying myself for. And that's what depression is, just self-flagellation. So I leave and I go back to my hostel. But in the days that follow, my mind starts to work again slowly. I still don't know what the fuck happened 
I mean, like the entirety. I still don't know. But my mind starts to work again a little bit. Because, man, this is, this is psychological rape of the highest order, okay? I'm in PTSD land. But I start thinking enough to go, you know what? I'm not going to go back there. I'm not going to go back there again. And she reaches out to me because we've got telephone contact. And she says, you know, we've got a school of journalism here in Berkeley. You should come to Berkeley. You should come here. You can come, and you can come here. Yeah, you should come to Berkeley. And my mind is beginning to come back to itself. And I'm like, oh, what's going on here? And mercifully, it's time for me to head back to the Midwest to go back to school. So I do that. I come back. I go back to graduate school. And it takes me a full two to three weeks being in a familiar situation for the full impact of what I was made to endure to come just crashing down on my ass like a ton and a half of bricks, man. The rage, the violation. So I put pen to paper. We didn't have email yet. I put pen to paper and I scribed five pages, double-sided, of the most vitriolic bile I could dredge up from the bottom of my soul, man. Just, it was just this massive rageful rant. Just like, you fucking cunt. You fucking me up. You know, fuck you. You fucking this. Fuck, fuck, fuck you. You fucking asshole. Fuck, 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 fuck. Just on and on and on. Just, just, mm. Started in an envelope. Mailed it to her. A few days later, she calls me back. We've got phone contact. And she goes off on a rant of her own. She's like, oh, you're a horrible person. How dare you put me through this abuse? And she rages on for a few minutes. And then I hang up the phone. And that was the end of that particular aspect of the story. But it was just the beginning of something else for me. Because I'd always had an interest in spirituality. And now, added to this, I'm, I'm really now interested in holistic uh, alternative means of healing. Because there was some shit that was working back there. There was some stuff that was working before it became corrupted. And I started searching. And this is like the late 80s, early 90s. So new age spirituality is burgeoning all over the place. So I bought all the books, read all the books, bought more books, read those books, and just immersed myself in this particular endeavor. And this is where I became a seeker. This is where I genuinely, seriously became a seeker. And also, as a result of this experience, I now have a very valuable tool. Because after this, I can smell a cult 20 miles away. <laughs> I can smell a fucking cult 20 miles away. And between now and then, I had some smelling to do because I'm seeking, man. I'm not stopping. And I'd go in this direction. I'd go, okay, I wouldn't even have to hear much. I think bells would go off and I'd go somewhere else. And I've been guided to have what, to me, have been invaluable, wonderful experiences. Sitting zazen, kundalini yoga, different forms of meditation. There's a spiritual tenet that says, conquer your mind and you conquer the world. And the world you're conquering, the outside world, yes, but what's outside begins inside here. That experience really has shown me that, for me, the best means of conquering, managing the mind is yoga, meditation. And that's where I am today. Thank you. Appearance out of nowhere 
This is Risk. This is Aldous Harding behind me now. And we just heard from Mickle White Esposito. You know, people use different names for people and things and places in the show sometimes for the sake of uh, privacy. And this reminds me, just hearing that story now, that if you have ever been in a cult or you were very deeply enmeshed in their lives but they were you were trying to get them out of a cult or something like that uh, reach out to us because I always find that subject matter really fascinating I think about 35% or so of the country is currently in one a lot of people have been emailing me to ask when there was a story told at our Austin, Texas show a few months back. It's the second story we'll run on the subject of cannibalism. It's very funny. Risk has this tendency when we run a story about a particular topic, then that topic starts coming at us again from other places. We will have that story on the show soon, but we want to make it a very special episode because if you're a risk listener, you know that one of the things that we've um, struggled with for over 10 years now is that we get very, very, very little recognition from the media, the press, the, you know, people, whenever people are writing what podcast you should be checking out, we're under the radar. We're an indie podcast, so we're not connected to some big corporation like, you know, so many of them are, where they'll have a lot of money for marketing and connections to get the word out about their podcasts. So we're hoping to put that cannibalism story, because it truly is a, a, just an astounding story. That's why so many people keep emailing us asking, when is it going to be on? When is it going to be on? We're hoping to put that on an episode with maybe a celebrity or just, you know, a couple of other really jaw-dropping, knock-you-out stories, and we're hoping to alert as much of the press and influencers, hey, you've got to check out this episode because uh, you're just not going to hear this kind of stuff anywhere else. But we were tipped off about that story by someone, John LaSala works on our staff, he saw an article in a newspaper about that situation and then reached out to the fella that the story was about. If you see stories out there in the world where you think, wow, I would really love to hear that person unpack more of what they were psychologically, emotionally, etc., going through when they lived through that extraordinary experience that got a little, you know, paragraph or two in the paper, alert us and we'll try to reach out to those folks. You can always reach us at kevin at risk-show.com. Okay, we have one last story for you on today's episode. This one comes from Brian Kett, who you can find at brianket.com. He shared this at the Risk Live Show in Los Angeles. Here he is now, Brian Kett, with a story we call No Substitutions, Please. When I was 18, I wanted to change the world. And it was all because I had this like really specific kind of optimism, the kind where I was really just too dumb to know any better. Like I could vote, but I didn't know how to balance a checkbook. And it was because of this optimism that I decided that I was going to major in education so I could become a high school science teacher. It was going to be great. I was going to stand and deliver, right? And I just pictured teaching my future students about 
like the periodic table and about how plant roots worked and about our solar system. And I would impart some real sage life advice as I did so because I already had all the answers, right, as an 18-year-old. I went to college to study to become a teacher, and I went to college right on the border between Illinois and Iowa, like right on the Mississippi River, in an area that's known as the Quad Cities, uh, which is a misnomer because there are actually five Quad Cities, so <laughs> you can file that one away. And there's not a lot going on out there, but there are a couple claims to fame in the Quad Cities. Uh, fun fact about them, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody from like the 1800s, the guy who killed like all the buffalo. He was from a neighboring town, so not in the Quad Cities, but just nearby, so there's that. And another fun fact about the Quad Cities is that they have a Jimmy John's. So just to recap, the Quad Cities are known for like having an incorrect name and not knowing how to count, for being adjacent to the hometown of an infamous buffalo murderer, and for having a sandwich shop chain. And so college was a blast. And at the end of college, I did my student teaching in the Quad Cities, and it was wonderful. All my students were just so kind and respectful and supportive. Like a lot of them wore overalls, and like not ironically. And they all had those big like corn-fed teeth. There was, even, there was even a bring your tractor to school day, right? It's like I was, it's like I was teaching inside a, like a Norman Rockwell painting or something. And at the end of my student teaching, I was just so filled with optimism and hope and buoyancy, I was ready to begin my career as an educator. And I got a job right after graduation in Chicago teaching science at an international school there where things could not have been more different. Students were from 75 different countries all over the world, everywhere from New Zealand to Mongolia to Russia to Poland, and lots of these students wound up in school-wide gangs. And it threw me off a little bit because up until this point, my biggest exposure to anything like this had been the movie The Godfather. <laughs> and at the school, kids didn't you know, settle disputes by making one another an offer that they couldn't refuse. What they would do instead in the hallways is they'd take combination locks and they put them in tube socks and then they'd swing and they'd crack their rivals in the face. It was, it was terrifying. They would do whatever their leaders told them to do, okay? Because their leaders, just like Marlon Brando in the movie, The Godfather, these leaders at school, they rewarded loyalty. Loyalty, right? And I, I didn't get that at all. I just wanted to teach. That's why I was there. So I made a promise that when kids walked into my classroom, two things were gonna happen. One, we were gonna learn some science. And two, we were gonna have fun doing it. <laughs> and to help ensure this level of fun, I gave every single one of my lessons a theme song to introduce what we were gonna learn that day. So for example, when we learned about chemical changes, I played Changes by David Bowie. <laughs> when we learned about sound waves, I played The Sound of Silence. And here's the thing, that would have killed in the Quad Cities, right? But. Simon and Garfunkel didn't really resonate in Chicago. Everyone, everyone hated it, and everyone hated my theme songs, and everyone hated me. And about a week into this, I remember I was standing at the front of the classroom, and I was explaining to my class how clever it was that I had played We Will Rock You to introduce our lesson on the rock cycle. <laughs> when Danny, who was one of my rougher students, he raised his hand for the first time. He had never said anything, right? And I said, oh my gosh. This is like my moment, this is a breakthrough. Like something's happening here. There's some, some real, oh captain, my captain shit going on. I said, what's up, Danny? You know, and he looked right at me. The class was silent. He's looked at me, he said, yo, Mr. Ket, that's me. Yo, Mr. Ket, no one cares. <laughs> and it absolutely destroyed me. And any respect my students had for me at that point, however little that was, it was gone. And from then on, every day they would come in and they would sit down and they would just see, they would just glare at me. And so I doubled down. And I decided that I had to break them of this mob mentality that they had in our classroom, right? And I decided I was gonna do this through two key tactics. One, I wasn't gonna miss a day of school. I'd be this ongoing positive presence in their lives. And two, every week, I would make them participate 
in team building activities. And this also didn't really track, it didn't land well. No, nobody wanted to play like two truths and a lie with me, but I just persisted. And by never missing a day, I really began to just wear them down. And it was around Thanksgiving, and we were doing trust falls in class. <laughs> when the whole room froze because Danny cleared his throat, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, he's gonna say something else. And he looked right at me, and I was so nervous, and he said, yo, Mr. Cat, this is kinda cool. And I knew right then and there that I had them, right? That they were mine. Like, I knew that I had broken them of this mob mentality. I'd never have to deal with that ever again. And from then on, teaching was great. Like, we were all on the same team. It's like I was back in the Quad Cities. It, it was easy. Like, kids would be working, and I would come up, and I'd, I'd turn a chair around backwards, and I'd sit in it like, like a cool teacher, like, like Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds, right? Or it's also in the, in the music video to Gangster's Paradise by Coolio, which features scenes from that movie, right? And that, that has nothing to do with this story. That's just another fun fact for all of you. But here's the thing. Life was great, okay? And this went on for months and months and months until the spring when I was summoned for one day of in-school technology training. I was part of this committee that was gonna have kids create avatars online and then use those avatars to solve virtual ecological problems. And it was really stupid, but this meant that I was gonna have to miss class for the first time the whole year, and there was gonna be a substitute. And I was so nervous that my kids were gonna treat the sub the same way they used to treat me. And so the day before I was gonna be gone, I read my class the riot act. I said the substitute was a guest in our classroom. The substitute would be treated with respect and if the substitute wrote down any student's name for misbehaving, any name, when I got back the next day, I would send that student straight to the dean, no questions asked. And they told me they understood. And so the next day, training started a little bit late. The avatars weren't ready or something. I don't know what was going on. And so I popped into my classroom just to make sure everything was like going okay. And it was. Like all my students were working better than they had ever had. They were all working quietly and I was so happy and I was so proud and they were overjoyed to see me because they weren't expecting to see me but I didn't want to make a big disruption I just gave them a little wave and I went to the front of the classroom where the substitute was and I recognized her she was a retired teacher in the district and she was a hard ass she looked like a like a federal judge she was sitting up there and I went up to her I was just so happy that she was at the helm right while I was away I said hi ma'am I'm Brian this is my class I just wanted to make sure everything was going okay and she looked up from the romance novel that she was reading, and in this voice that sounded like she just ate a pack of cigarettes, she said, I think I can handle it. And I said, oh, ma'am, no, I didn't mean it like, I didn't mean to imply, no, no, I just, in the past I've had some problems. She cut me off. She said, I got it, because I'm not an idiot. <laughs> I was so taken aback. And I looked over at my students, and they weren't smiling anymore. You know, my heart sunk. Because they were seeing weakness in me, right? Like, if she could talk to me like that, why couldn't they? Like, my whole charade, everything I had built the whole year, it was all over, just like that. But they weren't looking at me. They were glaring at her. And there was something in their eyes that hadn't really been there since the beginning of the school year. It was that, it was that intensity. I mean, they were really really worked up, and I'm not proud of this, but I was so offended with how she spoke to me that I didn't try to calm my students down. Instead, I just told her, okay, good luck. And then I turned to my students and I gave them a nod that said, I'll let you take it from here. And I walked out. <laughs> and as I headed down the hallway behind me in my classroom, I could hear chairs scraping against the floor and voices getting louder and louder. And I kept walking. <laughs> because revenge is a dish best served cold. And so after training, I felt guilty, right? I felt like I should have done more to have ensured that class had gone smoothly that day. But I was certain it had because the substitute was a veteran teacher. And I found her at my mailbox dropping off her sub report. And that was the first time I had ever seen someone whose soul was just truly broken. 
she walked past me in a daze, just this, this shell of a human, just this husk. And I thought, oh, what have I done? And on her report, she had written down the names of every single one of my students for misbehaving. It looked like the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> and it was littered with all sorts of phrases, phrases like insubordination and refusing to sit down and my personal favorite, constantly meowing. <laughs> And so the next day I went to class, like ready to reprimand everyone, send everyone down to the dean because they'd been in breach of what we had talked about. But before I could, Danny spoke up. He said the substitute deserved it because she had disrespected me. And everyone else chimed in in agreement. And in that moment, it really hit me that I had never broken these kids of their mob mentality. I had just taken on the role of leader. And it felt fantastic. <laughs> I was their Don. I was their godfather. And with that power, I decided that no one at school was ever going to disrespect me again. <laughs> and so in the end, I didn't write up a single kid. No one was sent down to the dean. Like, yeah, things had gotten a little heated with the substitute, but they were just being loyal. And like every other godfather, I rewarded loyalty. <laughs> Thanks. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The Who. Behind me now, uh, we usually go for songs that are off the beaten path. Today, that one's on the beaten path. Don't forget, you can always find out where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.
No one cares. 